the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast. Doug, it's good to see you. Bob, it's good to see you too, man. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Uh, Very busy as we're heading into the fall. A lot of uh, irons in the fire, as they say. Uh, But I guess that's better than the alternative. (laughs) (laughs) What? Yeah, that is definitely better than the alternative. But I'm trying to think what the alternative to irons in the fire would be, I guess. No irons or no fire. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I got nothing going on and no prospects. <laughs> Which, you know, it's it's funny. I coach a lot of pastors through sabbatical, and it's somewhere in the conversation, there's always, man, it's just such a rich time of life. I just wish we could live this way forever. And I'm I'm like, you know, at a certain point, vacation becomes unemployment, and it, that's when it's no longer fun. Like, you got to... You got to learn to enjoy the unbusy times when they come for what they are. But uh, if that's your whole life, yeah, well, you know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, that's that's interesting. I, I'm actually in the process of, of doing some spiritual direction with a guy right now who is just finishing up his, or who just finished up his sabbatical mm-hmm. and kind of walking him through that. And um, I'll tell you what, it's there is such there's such a gift to walking with people like as a as a coach as a spiritual director mm-hmm. i feel super blessed to be able to walk with people through um those experiences and even just watching god show up in them it's just yeah. it's such a such a cool thing you've been coaching for a long time bob haven't you yeah it's been about a decade or more yeah i lose track i'm i'm at that age where everything's either like it was it it was either last week or 10 years ago, and I can't really remember. <laughs> so I just say, yeah, decade plus. Yeah, decade plus. That's good. That that sounds like I did notice that there came a time in ministry, uh, like I've been a pastor for, for over 20 years now. I don't know how long. I, I, I get it yeah, mixed yeah. up. Is it like 23 years? It's just like, no, I think it's just over 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm still in my first year. It's still it's that, that love of ministry is still there. Feel like it's the honeymoon stage all over again for 20 some years that's weird really the, and it's not true no <laughs> okay yeah <laughs> that's <laughs> okay i missed the sarcasm i'm like really i was i wanted to delve into that because i'm like there's you've got a secret that i want to know because that's not normal <laughs> well and i don't think it's healthy let's be honest that's I true it would be fully healthy. I think part of growing up is that. And yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I think it's for you. What are some things you're noticing as you're coaching right now? Uh, great question. Yeah. I mean, I, I, obviously everyone's a little tired. Obviously the challenges of the last couple of years, like it, uh, we always say this in a mystery seminary did not prepare me for this, but uh, I mean, this time seminary really did not prepare you <laughs> to take your church online. Seminary did not prepare you to not meet together for a year. Seminary did not prepare you to, um, yeah, to lose people both uh, just mentally and spiritually as they kind of wandered away or even physically in the sense that there was, there was a lot of uh, COVID deaths and people dealing with grief and 
you know, it's just such a weird season to try to do something like ministry that is so intensely people oriented and you're not allowed to get together with people, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I think, I think for a lot of pastors, it was just, uh, I don't know how to lead during this time. I don't know. I don't know what to do next. It's like all our vision casting and planning. It just got thrown out the door and just got to make it up as you go along, you know? It does feel like a lot of folks that I've chatted with. Yeah. I hear that too. There's just this, there's a, it's a tired room. You know, folks yeah. kind of come in and it just, you can feel. Yeah. Everyone's a little crispy, a little crispy around the edges. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like too, there's also, but there is this sense of hope that I I'm noticing mm-hmm. in some of the folks that I've been coaching and in spiritual direction with of just, it seems like there's, there seems to be an openness to allow Christ to come into those crispy spaces where mm-hmm. I feel like in seasons past, when the going has gotten tough and crispiness has set in, it's like, I just need a reset and you plow through it. Um, mm-hmm. Or it's, we try to pray it away and just get, get away from it where I feel like a lot of pastors and leaders I've been chatting with seem to have had the courage to lean into it. Yeah. And also see some healing on the other side of that, which has just been really, really encouraging. Yeah, I think anything that comes to us in ministry that helps us realize that not only do we not have all the answers, but it's not even our job to have all the answers. And that uh, that makes us depend on God in ways that we haven't had to in the past. I, I, I just feel like that's a gift in so many ways. And if we can learn to see it through that lens, uh, there's formation to be had, even in those really overwhelming and tired times of life, you know? You're right, because it, it, it seems like up before 2020, even if there was a crisis that took place within my church, I could at least call another pastor or read a book yeah. where, oh, that's how there is a game plan. Yeah, somebody could tell you how to how to navigate it. Yeah, but this was completely unprecedented the last two years. Yeah, yeah, I I, I do think that there's something really unique and holy about pastors and their resilience in this season of even just realizing that it's kind of a, a really beautiful gift and a really ugly package to be reminded that you you can't lead with all the answers all the time, and that's actually. Yeah super helpful in terms of helping us to become a people that rely on the presence of the spirit to lead us and, yeah. and also, also learn how to say, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? I messed that up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you're right. There is that note of hope. And I think a lot of it has to do with, yeah, some people have, some people wandered away over the last couple of years. We're, we're not, some people aren't coming back, but those that are, they're in it. Like there's been a a little bit of a winnowing uh, and a a, a a refining, and but those that are there uh, are there for the right reasons. And I think I hear this from a lot of people. They they say our church is actually growing now. It's like new people are showing up. Um, something about life right now is kind of making people think about their spiritual lives and they're looking to connect with community. Maybe that's something they missed over the last couple of years and church is a, a natural place to find that. But 
yeah, so there is also that sense of hope. You're right. You're right. It almost reminds me when I was out in Oregon for for grad school, um, I got to walk through some spaces where there were some controlled burns, um, where they were doing Mm -hmm. some like forest fire work. And I was amazed with how quickly new growth comes mm-hmm. after those fires show up and just decimate yeah. areas or after they kind of do that. And I think it almost feels like one of those seasons where you're starting to see the, this new growth happen and, and the yeah. resilience of the people that have been able to, to, to make it through, I think needs to be celebrated within our churches. But I think it also needs to be, it's like, we have now, we've been in maintenance mode and putting out fire mode for two plus years. And now it's almost like we're getting we our feeder under us and mm-hmm. let's sort of rediscover what the church is. I, I wonder if this is how Israel felt um, going into exile after like two years of being completely disoriented in, in Babylon. If there was this moment of, huh, okay, well, we're not leaving anytime soon. You know, this isn't just going away. You know, our best people have been praying for this to leave and it's still here. But, well, maybe God's present in the midst of the mess and the chaos. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah, and I think that's where God shows up in really mighty and powerful ways. But, yeah. Our guest today is Sean Palmer. He is a teaching pastor at Ecclesia Houston, a speaker and and an executive coach. He is also the author of Unarmed Empire and a contributing writer to The Voice Bible. He is vice chair of Missio Alliance board, and he and his wife, Rochelle, live in Houston, Texas with their two daughters. Sean, it's been a while since we've had you on the show, but thank you again for joining us. It's really good to see your face again. That's great to be here. Thanks for having me back. So we are really excited to talk. We've been really fortunate to have um, some incredible pastors and leaders and thought leaders on the show for the years that we've been doing this. Um, But we haven't done a lot of conversations around preaching and teaching. It's come up, but Mm -hmm. what we really appreciate is you've got a, a fantastic resource for pastors thinking about uh, the book is called Speaking by the Numbers, Enneagram Wisdom for Teachers, Pastors, and Communicators. And, and we're going to jump into that. Uh, that's going to be the lion's share of our conversation. But can you tell us a bit how you got interested in the Enneagram and how it's impacted you in terms of your pastoral ministry and leadership? Yeah. So this has been, I guess, now by the publication of Speaking by the Numbers, maybe something like a 10-year journey. And I tell people I got introduced to the Enneagram in the best way like humanly possible which was that uh, a friend of mine who is a pastor in Nashville named Josh Graves sent me a text message one day and said, hey, would you like to go to a retreat in Connecticut with Ian Cron? And I had just the previous year before that had read Jesus, My Father, the CIA, and me. Um, Ian and I had both spoken out of Pepperdine University the same week, and I'd spent a little bit of time with him, but I'd really liked that book. and so. I was like, absolutely, yes. So uh, a couple months later, we're all in Connecticut. It's this weekend on contemplative spirituality. And Ian's introducing people that very first night. And I meet this woman and her husband. She's sitting next to me at this reception named Suzanne Stabile. And I had no, oh. never heard of her at all. And I barely knew what the Enneagram was. Uh, years before that, I had dinner 
with uh, my co-worker and founder of the church where I now serve, Ecclesia Christy and Brian McLaren. And they were talking about a mutual friend of theirs who was an eight on the Enneagram. And I had no idea what it meant to be an eight on the Enneagram. And they were talking about it. All I knew after that dinner was that I did not want to be an eight on the Enneagram, whatever that was. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. That's awesome. <laughs> so we, uh, we go and, uh, you know, the, the f- first full day, it just says on the, on the schedule, it just says Enneagram work. And Suzanne spent that whole day doing what I now know to be her know your number uh, seminar. And she started with eight and worked around the circle, eight, nine, one, two, three. And when she got to three, um, I just never heard myself explained to myself so clearly before in my life. And it was just this incredible group of people. Like I'm, I'm sitting next to Joe Stabile in that room. And uh, on the other side of me is Ed Gunger, who is, you know, Gunger daddy for David and Michael's dad, you know, um, and just an incredible group of people. And so I thought, man, that's really fascinating. And so I ordered Richard Rohr's book, you know, the Enneagram and Christian perspective, I think about, and it did what most books do when they come to my house, which is go to the bottom of the stack and I'll eventually get to it. But my, um, you know, seven or eight year old, she's always been very precocious, always been a reader, like saw it, picked it up and started reading it. And like I tell parents everywhere, if your kids are into something, you need to get into that something. Right. And so she came back and after she read the book, and this is not crazy for her at at that age and said, um, I think I'm a one on the Enneagram. Now (laughs) we know you know, for a lot of reasons now that she's, she's not a one, but she's, and there are some reasons she thought she was, but she turns out, turns out that she's a four on the Enneagram, but that really started my journey in the Enneagram because I wanted to know what captured her attention so much. And I began to talk to friends and about it and people in our congregation. I was living in Temple, Texas at the time. They wanted to know more and more about it. So, you know, I downloaded the know your number stuff from life in the Trinity and we all listened to it as a small group. I kind of grew and grew and grew and grew from there. I got more interested, read more books, listened to more podcasts. Uh, about five years ago now, I decided to do a cohort with Suzanne at Life in the Trinity. And so you meet multiple times over the course of the year, have assignments and readings and all of that. And that's what really um, started my interest. What started my interest in the book is that I'm at a church where it's a lot of Enneagram knowledge. And I tell this story in the book is that I, I gave a sermon one Sunday morning and the introduction had to do with choices. And I left some of that sermon is actually in the book and about how your life to a large degree, not all of it, but to a large degree is the result of your choices. Like you chose to eat that. You chose not to work out. You chose to buy that house. You chose to marry that person. You chose to have those kids. You chose to raise them in this way. Um, you don't control everything, but you control more than you think you do. And I stand by all of that. But after it was over, um, a girl and a woman in our congregation came up to me and she says, and she's also an eight on the Enneagram. <laughs> and she goes, that's the most Enneagram three sermon I have ever heard in my life. And while I don't take anything Man. back that I said in the sermon, it m- made me pause to think, 
what if for two decades I have been talking to myself? Hmm. Like assuming that the rest of the world sees the world the way that I do, interprets events, actions, has the same kind of motivations, has the the same kind of events that make them bring them joy, make them sad. And that's really the journey that started um, the book because I wanted to explore this idea that everyone's not me right? and we hear and process things differently. And what if communicators, not just in churches, but everywhere are missing huge chunks of their hearers because they don't understand their hearers to the level that they should. And maybe the Enneagram could help us with that. Sean, I, I love the idea that uh, the Enneagram is really about how we see the world. You talk about that uh, in the book. And I, just that, that idea that that's an Enneagram 3 sermon. And now I'm trying mm-hmm. to think about, I'm an Enneagram 6. I wonder what, what is distinctly 6 about my sermons. But I wonder if you can go a little deeper and tell us, I mean, how do different Enneagram types tend to communicate publicly in in preaching or teaching you know what what does an enneagram three sermon look like or enneagram (laughs) one or you know we all know sevens those are just nothing but rabbit trails but (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's a really great question and it's what i'm trying to get at in the in the book and so like the last chapter of the book is tying all of those threads together so the first thing is, and I'll, I'll do this kind of generally so people can start thinking about their own personality structure um, in it, is that we are all communicating from the vantage point of our number. So what are the strengths of that number? Like if you, as a six, like uh, sixes tend to be traditionalist, right? They're very loyal. They're also kind of uh, motivated by fear in a, predi- in a pr- particular way. Um, but you take in as a six, like you take in the world through your mind and right. And so, because you're in a thinking triad, but because you're also a six, like you are, you, you are dominant and repressed in the same intelligence center. So what I do through the book is like everybody who knows the Enneagram, at least on a surface level knows that there are these things called triads. So eights, nines, and one are a triad, two, threes, and fours are a triad, uh, five, sixes, and sevens are a triad. And that tells us the intelligence center between thinking, feeling, and doing. Those are the three intelligence centers, thinking, feeling, and doing. Which one we're dominant in. So eights, nines, and ones are in uh, the, uh, their dominant center is doing. Twos, threes, and fours, it's the heart, their feeling. And five, sixes, and sevens, it's thinking. That's how you perceive the world. And so there's another group of three numbers inside the Enneagram, which is called your stance, which is then how you process or what you do with those. Um, where it gets complicated, and I explain this in the book on page 36 and 37, because I knew people were going to ask this question, is that threes, sixes, and nines are dominant and repressed in the same intelligence center. And we, you see this all over the world, in every tradition, every religious tradition, every governmental or political system, uh, these are the three centers of intelligence that every person has. We all think, we all feel, we all do. And we all do all three. So being dominant or repressed doesn't mean you don't do it. It does indicate what gives you the most energy, what you are drawn to. 
So one of the things that is what probably happens at my congregation here in Houston is that our founding pastor, Chris C., is an eight on the Enneagram. I'm a three on the Enneagram. And so we are both feeling repressed people, which means that we don't give enough credence to our feelings or other people's feelings. And it's easy for us to run over people um, or to dismiss people who feel very deeply or are very demonstrable in their feelings. Um, someone who is in the head triad thinking dominant, man, those, those women and men get up and give sermons. And it is like, really, do we have to have, you know, footnotes for every sentence? Like, do we have to, you know, there's so much data. I just tell one of the stories in the book of, of a five I know who has preached for years and years and years and years and years. Uh, but his, his messages, it, it's kind of like sitting in a seminary class every week. And so there are certain people who eat that up, right? And there are certain people who, man, I, w- I went to that church for a month and all they did, you know, all they did was talk. That's the kind of thing that you, you'd hear as a criticism. Um, people who are overly dominant in doing churches, presenters, speakers that are overly dominant in doing. It's like they just wear their people out. So what they see is no one ever says anything, but there's just this, this revolving door and people will come and they'll show up and they'll be a part of that congregation for a while and say, I just love this. Like they're really engaged with people. Like they, they do more than just talk about it. Uh, but at, you know, year three, year five, like I am worn out. I just need to go rest for a while. Um, people, presenters who are dominant in the feeling center of intelligence, like folks like you, Bob, will sit and listen to them and go like, oh, you know what? That was a good story. Uh, but like, so what? Like we've got to actually like, did did they cross all of their T's and dot all of their I's? Um, it'll come across as emotionality and sentimental. And the communicator's challenge is to balance out themselves so they can balance out their communication so they can speak to the whole of people. And that's really what I'm after both as a communicator and trying to help communicators do through the book. And there, there's something that's really intriguing about thinking from this direction, because it, it, it really does bring us to a space of, of actually recognizing that not everybody is ourself. And I think that that, or not everyone's me. And, and that might be a hard step for some people, right? Because we were trained in seminary or whatever. And like, this is what good preaching is, or we listen to Keller or, you know, like whoever your favorite preacher mm-hmm. is, you know, Sean Palmer, whatever. And you're paying attention to what they're doing and you're trying to figure out how do I how do I engage people? Because that guy seems like he is engaging. And so what I think I hear you saying is mm-hmm. you're actually being engaged more from your center than you are, than you even recognize. Is that, is that accurate? Oh yeah. And we're drawn to it. And so even to think about where we went to seminary, like that seminary, just like our denominations mm. has a personality, right? It's drawn to certain types of things. Uh, and we don't realize um, our spirituality style, our personality style. Um, there are a lot of people who, like, I would not be surprised if someone were to do this work to find that there are more twos, threes, and fours in charismatic or Pentecostal churches on average, and more um, five, sixes, and sevens 
say in something like PCUSA or people that use who, for, for whom order was a big deal. And usually what happens in those church systems is the people who are in them who are banging against the walls. It's partly theological, but it's partly personality. Mm. Um, like, cause what they are saying is what they are saying to the greater system is this system is not balancing the whole person. It's leaning too heavily on one type of person. That I think that's such an important distinction because, and I, I don't know, I, I, my brain's sort of moving pretty quickly because I am thinking about that. You're right. There, there does seem to be particular enneotypes that probably gravitate more towards certain kinds of denominations or, or even teachers. So, you know, just thinking about you know, a pastor who's, who's interested, they've kind of spent some time thinking through the Enneagram, they know their number, they recognize, oh yeah, that person's of this, or this person over here is, is in that world, or they're hearing feedback basically without someone saying that was such a three sermon, they're hearing feedback saying that was a three sermon. Where would a pastor or a teacher or a communicator just begin to start in understanding what that whole balanced uh communication looks like yeah so um well obviously to read speaking by the numbers would be the the place you want (laughs) to begin with with that um so the the first thing that and i i i talk about this kind of in the the last chapter of the book too is the first thing that a great communicator in order to balance out their communication and hopefully balance out their organization has to do is come to the task with a healthy self. So uh, as my mentor, Suzanne Stabile says, like everyone needs uh, a therapist and a spiritual director. Now I'm the very first person, I think I'm probably the only one who's really talking about this in the Christian space is that we are now living in a time and place where we have seen the rise of the therapeutic that we think everything is solved by therapy. And that's not quite the case, but I think it's a great tool. But my point there is the healthier you are as an individual and you balancing out yourself, like, you know, like, okay, so I'm dominant in some ways. I'm repressed in some ways. How do I bring balance? And then how do I then help my organization move along? But the first step is to start with self, uh, to develop within the self um, someone who Uh, knows what their weaknesses are, knows what their strengths are, surrounds themselves with other people who bring balance to them, who can hold them accountable to that. And then, you know, to be deliberate about what we are doing as an organization. Does it, are we, are, where are we asking people to think? Where are we asking people to feel? And when and what are we asking people to do? We're actually revamping our entire mode of spiritual formation at, in our congregation around those three things to try to make, to try to ensure that we're inviting people into a full and robust life. So that's the place to start. I would say, learn about your, um, learn about your Enneagram type. And then the other, the typology of other people in your organization who are in leadership, because what can happen is that you have, um, like I knew an organization, for instance, the, the three people at the top of the leadership, uh, there were two eights on the Enneagram and a two. And they were individually incredible people. Together, they were awful. 
um, because you had so much, you had this intermix of distrust from the eights and a codependence from the two. Uh, and those, those two numbers share a line on the Enneagram. It just produced great results until it didn't. And then, but it, even in the process of creating great results, there was a lot of toxicity because they weren't a balanced leadership team. So your leadership needs to be balanced. I'd say start there after you like yourself, then immediately your leadership team and a church, then your staff to really know yourselves. And there are tons of books, you know, that can get you started. Uh, Ian and Suzanne's The Road Back to You, if you want to use the Enneagram as your tool, is a wonderful book. Um, I really like David Daniel's book, The Essential Enneagram. It's really small. You can read it in like 30 minutes um, as a place to start, and it's not too, too much. Um, so there, I mean, I've probably read somewhere between, you know, maybe 30 and 50 Enneagram books. And all of them are really great for particular things. Uh, but like speaking by the numbers, for instance, is written for people who know, who have a basic knowledge of their type, and then to take it from there. Uh, because we don't go, I don't go into typology in, in that book. Sean, it, you know, it occurs to me as, as you were talking about that and, and Doug's question of where do we start? One of the, the questions that I always found most helpful in leadership was to ask people on my staff, where do you need more of me? Where do you need less of me? Like, where mm. am I being, where am I, where, where do I need to step it up and where do I need to step it back? Uh, but as you were talking, I was thinking, you know, I never asked that question about my own preaching. I never asked people in my community, like, what do I do too much of? What, what do I need to do more of? You know, uh, and just that idea of sometimes we can, we can get too like, we got way too much detail, way too many facts and trivia bits in our sermons, because we think that they are fascinating. But maybe right. others are like, no, speak <laughs> to my heart, what's the point? You know, so I think there's a challenge there for communicators just to get brave enough to actually ask people, like, I don't want you to critique everything about my sermons. Just tell me, like, you know, what what would be helpful to have more of? My friend, my friend Luke Norsworthy in in Austin um, has a great practice, and I'm not sure that he's continued it kind of post COVID, but pre COVID, I know for sure he did it. <coughs> Excuse me where he would invite a cross-section of the congregation to hear the sermon on Thursday afternoon, Thursday at lunch. And they like, provide lunch, kind of brown bag lunch. And it wasn't performative at all. Like it's basically him sitting in a circle with them, like reading the manuscript of the sermon and having them give feedback. And it's, it's amazing what we find. And every, every person who's spoken in front of an audience knows this. Someone will come up to you and say, what was meaningful to them in your sermon. And you'll think, I, I didn't say that. <laughs> like, like, I didn't, like, I, I didn't, get, I didn't say anything like that, but like, that's mm -hmm. what they heard. Or like the thing that you thought was um, a throwaway, maybe even um, like not centrally the heart of it. Like, you know, they got that and ran with it. And so it's really great to hear feedback and yeah, like, you know what? There are some people 
Bob, in your congregation, who if you don't give them enough detail, their takeaway is going to be like, oh, she doesn't, he doesn't do his homework, right? They're just up there spitball. And there are other people, if you give too much, it's like, you know what? Like, I didn't sign up for an academic lecture. And then there are other folks who are like, well, what are we supposed to do? So in each message, you've got to balance that out in a way that's, that's helpful and meaningful. And then you got to kind of know who you're talking to. Like, there are, there's every number in every church. But every church, I think, this is just me guesstimating, I think we have a proclivity in particular congregations to have a lot of one kind of number. And that's why our triads and stances are so helpful. Like, I would guess that in our congregation, we have um, a lot of what's called aggressive types. So threes, sevens, and eights. Um, and that's because it's hard not to when you have been led by an aggressive type for 22 years. Right. And your primary communicators are aggressive types. Uh, so I would say, like, we probably don't have a lot of, um, we probably don't have a lot of dependent types. I mean, I know for a fact that we have some. So ones, twos, and sixes, um, because, you know, they, they're asking different questions. Like, we're going to, at, at Ecclesia, there are 52 Sundays in the year. Like, we're going to give you something to do in the real world 48 Sundays. <laughs> because that, and it's not quite that extreme, but you get mm -hmm. what I mean. You get what I mean. And so there are some people who are drawn to that. And there are some people who, over time, just don't have the stamina to, to deal with that. And so it'll come, it'll serve its purpose for a while. I happen to be in Houston, which is the most church hoppingest town in the entire world, I would bet. And so, um, yeah, I, I think that's a great question for pastors to ask is like, oh, who am I, who am I actually speaking to, uh, both in the way that I present and my own presentation of myself and what we're trying to accomplish, what we feel like God's called us to do in our local context. So Sean, let, let's get real practical here. I mean, I, I love this idea of trying to balance out uh, whether we're speaking to those that are more thinking-oriented, more feeling-oriented, more doing-oriented, what does Enneagram-informed sermon or teaching prep look like? Mm. Like, how, how practically, during the week, how would I do that? Yeah. Um, so there are several things, um, which, again, my publisher forced me to include at the end of the book <laughs> in terms of, like, how, how it looks. So uh, there are a few things I'll talk about is one is diversifying the voices in your, in your congregation. Um, and, and I get it. Like I was a solo pastor for nearly a decade and I had precious few resources to draw on for someone else to, to preach on a weekly basis. Um, and so that's not something that's easily available to everybody. Plus at the time I was in churches that were not egalitarian. So not only, uh, you know, like not only that I had to find a man who could preach. Right? <laughs> like, so, um, but if you can diversify the voices in your church is the easiest step because you are going to speak from your personality structure whether you want to or not, like you just can't avoid it. Just like you can't change your physical voice when you stand uh, in front of the church. 
So one, you diversify. Then you actually want to diversify who gets to speak into what's being taught and the way it's being taught. So if it's always a pastor off in a corner or off in a room by themselves, never hearing back uh, from other people about what do, what do not only do we need to talk about, but what do we want to talk about? What does our congregation need to hear? Like we're having a conversation right now. Um, and like, how do we talk about um, issues like gender and sexuality? How do we talk about abortion? Really uh, tough issues. And so any of us could get up and give it a, a sermon on one of those and it'd probably be fine. But the next le lever, layer down from that is to say, like, how do we want to talk about that? Um, do we want that to be a conversation that we have that's primarily drawing people into uh, acknowledging and seeing their feelings and the feelings of other people? Do we want that to be, hey, here are all the stats, here are the statistics, here's the exegesis, or like this is how we, given where we are in the world, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to partner with um, crisis pregnancy, or this is how we're going to partner with people who uh, you know, so we, how are we going to talk about that? And not enough pastors in my experience have spent enough time talking about how they want to address something and whether it touches mm -hmm. those centers. Um, one of the easiest things that you can do, Bob, is, um, and I, I do this with all of my clients, is like on the top of a sheet of paper when you're writing your sermon, just write, think feel, do. And like, what do I want people to think? What do I want people to feel? And what do I want people to do? Um, and like start there instead of where many of us start, which I find the most frustrating place to start, which is what are the points from this text? Right? So um, there is no there is no win for the hearer and you just trying to make a point like we actually don't like that in general conversation. Um, we don't like it on social media. We don't like it when we talk to people that we love where you sit down because it feels agendized. Like I want you to think or believe something. So let's move that conversation. There will be points along the way, but let's talk about how the way people actually function in the real world. People think, feel, and do. We do not change our behavior based on points or good arguments. Every pastor in the world has tons of people in their con congregation who have made bad decisions knowing that they were bad decisions when they made them. Mm. Like points aren't the way that people live. We live through an affect of what we think, what we feel, what we do. And, and I think what you're getting at is so helpful because it also gives the pastor, the preacher, the teacher, um, almost a green light just to bring themselves fully to the conversation. But even, even from the perspective of allowing oneself the opportunity to just, I don't know, to, to, to nuance the conversation a bit more, you know, to say things like, Oh, this is sort of how it works, or this is how it may look. Uh, in or this is how I'm thinking about this, uh, and then even having other people help to understand what it is to feel a certain way with that. I think that I think that's really helpful. So, and again, I I don't want to I don't want you to like pick on anybody here, but uh, you know, one of the questions that I think would be really helpful is which is the hardest type to effectively communicate to, 
uh, or in other words, who's the worst Enneagram number to have in your church? <laughs> the, the worst Enneagram number to have in church. And it's not really picking on some, anyone <laughs> because I'm one of these people. Um, but I think aggressive types are the worst threes, sevens, and eights because we always think three, sevens, and eights always think that we could do it better uh, than everyone else. And that you are, if you're not giving us what we need in that moment, then you are wasting our time. And so it makes it very difficult for us uh, to actually listen to someone else. And we are not inclined as a type to give over our autonomy to other yeah. people. So we want to make the decisions. We want to, you know, a three, seven, if, if a three, a seven, or an eight were, let's say, a, an athlete, they would want to be the quarterback, the wide receiver, running back, or the pitcher. Like they are the folks who want to hold the ball all the time. Man, I I have been. I, it's funny. We're maybe we are kind of picking on eights in this conversation <laughs> a little bit, but in, oh, yeah, in, yeah, as I think awesome. back on my kind of leadership experience, I have been blessed by some really mature eights. <laughs> But I have always consistently found that if someone begins to feel like a thorn in my side, uh, chances are they're an immature mm. eight. Mm. Like yeah. there's, there's something about that type in church life that just they uh, they're kind of hard to deal with. But when they get mature, man, they they're great. Yeah, I mean, they. Um, you know, I, I think eights are probably easy to pick on, <laughs> and I. I pick on them a lot. Um, and I think they're probably easy to pick on because their, uh, their personality structure is easier to see. It's just more demonstrable. Um, but because of aggressive types, three sevens and eights, because they are aggressive types, they often end up in leadership and they are comfortable as a type with not knowing the answer to something, but pretending like they do. Um, because they are kind of as a cohort folks who are who feel okay with jumping out of the plane and building a parachute on the way down um and that generates a lot of confidence from other people but we tend to not know when we're building the parachute on the way down when we're in the middle of like, oh, we really don't know how to build this parachute <laughs> <laughs> or like the winds change. And like, that's just part of our personality structure that we just have to learn to adapt. And that again, Bob, this is why it's so important to have a diverse leadership team that you trust, particularly for AIDS for the, that you trust um, to be able to, to speak into some of those issues and times to say like, hey, let's Let's slow down. Let's rethink this. Um, maybe you're off the mark. And healthy, the health, that's the healthier they are, the better. And that's why I say it all starts with you have to get healthy. And if the Enneagram helps you do that, I'm all for it. If yeah, there's nothing you can say with Enneagram language that you can't say without Enneagram language. And there are some folks who are like, oh, that's just something a lot of people are into right now and I don't want to be into it. I don't like it or that's fine. Just get healthy. Mm. Like, and the same things will show up in life. 
regardless of the language you put around them. Uh, so yeah, I, I'm fine to pick on AIDS. I think they bring a lot of energy, um, but we do like, and I've had this, you know, I had a, I had a staff member tell me maybe six or eight months ago that I had hurt her feelings multiple times. And for the life of me, I'm thinking like, I don't spend enough time around you to have ever hurt your feelings. Like, I can't imagine when that was. But because I know that I'm capable of it, because being Enneagram informed has led me to know that I'm capable of running over your feelings and not noticing. I think that probably did happen. And I probably just didn't mm. notice. Right. Um, and so I don't get defensive. Um, or upset. I don't say, well, when did that happen? You know, like, let's argue it out. I go, yeah, you know what? I know that that's possible with me. So I'm sorry. And I don't have to know the rest. I, I, I hear in, in everything that you're saying and, and just from, from uh, reading the book that it, it's not it, like it's so valuable uh, to know yourself as a communicator, to know what your strengths are, what kind of ruts you tend to drive in, uh, to begin to know your audience. But I think, too, uh, just as we're talking, uh, something that's dawning on me is that um, when you talk about diversity and leadership, and I think in a teaching team, I think most of us as communicators, if, if we're bringing other communicators along, we tend to bring them along as clones of ourselves. You know, we mm. tend to teach them how to do it the way that we do it. And right. uh, I'm thinking of multiple times in the past when uh, I, in that thinking kind of center, preached a sermon that maybe it would have been better to hand off to, say, Sarah, who was our very feeling-oriented communicator. And she wouldn't have preached it the way that I would have. And I would have felt like she probably left a lot of stuff on the table that we needed to get to, but people would have responded in a, in a completely different way. And whatever, and that some of the things we were talking about really needed that feeling approach as opposed to my thinking approach, you know? Uh -huh, and uh -huh. yeah, I think there's a challenge here for, for those of us that do preach is to surround ourselves, not just with people that do it the way that we mm. do it. You know, but to intentionally seek out those that do it differently. Yeah, one of the one of the things I talk about in um, one of the later chapters of the book is that very thing, Bob. This idea is like, um, like not only do we want to communicate around this, um, we want to choose who communicates. So I'll give you an example. So we have um, a woman in our congregation who's a fabulous communicator. Um, her husband's in on our board. She is one of the um, one of the best sociologists living and breathing in the world. Right? Teaches at Rice, and so she preached for our congregation uh, three weeks ago. And so, of course, she has got stats and figures, and she's talking about. Um, Mary, the mother of Jesus and immigration and all of these intersections. Uh, but she is also uh, Latina uh, and pro probably one of the smartest people <laughs> that I've ever met. And so she, not only is she an expert in the field and not only is she um, uniquely 
qualified to talk about this because of her racial and ethnic background, Chris or I could not have given that sermon. And she's a one on the Enneagram. She wants to perfect the world. She brought all of this passion. I am out of town uh, preaching at another church, and I am getting text messages in real time from my children <laughs> about like this sermon is like fire, right? Like, and um, like, you know, my, my daughters are 18 and 15. And when an 18 and 15 year old are dialed in like that, like she could, she could write a sermon and give it to me, give me the manuscript. Like I can't do what she, cause my instinct is not to perfect the world. Um, and so she brought all of this energy to this topic that she's passionate about um, and that we've done some things with in our congregational life. But people walked out and go like, oh, yeah, we really need to do something about that. Like, and I knew that because she, um, um, you know, because of her personality structure, I knew exactly what it was going to be. I was not shocked at all. And no one else in our community could do what she did. And. So that's why I say diversify that team. Most of us, I'm a teaching pastor. Like I get, I get paid to show up and teach on Sundays. If I do that well, I can do everything else poorly. All that to say, even with that being my job, I need to preach less to round out and to benefit our church. And that's what, that's what we have found here at Ecclesia is that, oh, like the two guys who do the primary teaching, um, they need to do less of that for us to be a better mm. church. Sean, thank you so much for sharing that. I feel like it that is probably one of the biggest paradigm shifts for many pastors listening, right? <laughs> like the idea mm -hmm. of us being the lead equippers uh, and not just the lead voices in our community are that's that's so it's it yeah, you're on to something that's super important for us to to wrestle with and to think through. Sean, it's been such a pleasure chatting with you. Could you leave our pastors with a benediction? Sure. And I'll just leave with um, kind of my favorite uh, because it speaks so much to my, my heart. And so it's just the benediction from the book of Jude. So now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to make you stand without blemish in the presence of his glory with rejoicing. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen. Well, thanks for joining us for this episode of MMP. Our passion is to serve, partner with, and equip hungry pastors and kingdom leaders just like you. Have you signed up for the Kairos Partnerships free weekly newsletter called Five Things in Five Minutes? It's free and it's delivered to your inbox every Tuesday morning. It provides valuable thoughts, links, questions, and quotes to equip you for the ministry and leadership journey. And the entire thing can be read in five minutes or less. To sign up, log on to kairospartnerships.org slash 5T5M. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.